fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. John Copenhaver's here. How are you doing, John? I am doing well, Al. How are you? Well, um, I'm I'm okay. Been been busy as usual. Um, you know how things go. So did so did you watch the Grammys? I I did not watch the Grammys. I, I don't get particularly interested in the Grammys. I feel like all the music I listen to is not well. It's just really not being represented by the Grammys. So yeah, I kind of stay away because I just don't have a strong enough opinion. I don't I don't have a, a horse in that race. I guess is a way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you don't know anybody that's nominated or wins. You know, for the yeah. most part, or it might be a few of them. But I know what you mean. It's kind of. It's kind of different and stuff. And then I see, boy, people are sure mean. They're sure taking, saying bad things about, I think, Madonna and, <laughs> and of course, uh, the other one, too, with the guy with the Satanist thing they're saying and stuff. It's just really weird how. Oh, really? God, I really, maybe I need to dig into some of the the uh, chit-chat about it. That's always interesting. <laughs> well, it's interesting, but don't get in. That. Just stay away. Don't get involved because the people are throwing stuff at each other. It's just pretty nasty. And I don't, I don't quite understand it actually. I'm, you know, whatever, you know, let people do what they want to. And, (laughs) but that's how it is. You know, it's the world today. Indeed. (laughs) Well, and I guess the world was, you know, the U.S. has had problems like this all along. And today we're going to get into a book. And an author that talks about this and kind of has this as part of his historical mystery book. Now, it's uh, book three of the Gideon Stoltz mystery. And uh, it's called Lay This Body Down. And the author is with us, Charles Fergus. So we're glad you're here. I'm very happy to be here today, Al. Well, Charles, um, this is quite a book here. Um uh, just going through it, and I noticed that. Uh, so you, this is kind of a period piece. So you're talking about um, the period of pre-Civil War in America, like 1837. And um, for some reason, I, I guess I should know, but um, I, there's a lot of people that probably don't know wh- what was the atmosphere in the U.S. that sets up for this book in 1837. It was a fantastically interesting time. Honestly, it was um, it was known as the age of Andrew Jackson. That's what we call it today, or the Jacksonian era. Andrew Jackson was president from uh, I think it was 1829 to 1837. Old Hickory. Uh, he was quite a character. He carried around a pistol ball lodged near his heart, which was the souvenir of a duel that he had fought as a younger man. So. You know, it was a it was a, a rough time, a rugged time in our country's history. Because you have to do a lot of research to kind of get into a story that sets in a time like this, because you want to still have the, the the history correct. 
Absolutely. The history's just got to be correct. There was an article in the Washington Post today about how when somebody writes a historical novel and they have an anachronism in it, it just kicks the reader right out of the story. And, you know, so you really don't want to do that. And you want to give credence to this very interesting and very intriguing time in our country's history. Uh, there's a book about the Jacksonian era that's called Waking Giant because our country was really beginning to flex its muscles. It was, you know, it was uh, our country was expanding rapidly to the West. There, there was an economic boom. And, you know, there, were, there was lots of controversy at that time. America was full of new ideas. Like today. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's one of the things that fascinates me about this time period because much of what was taking place back then it sounds kind of hauntingly familiar. Um, you had controversy that was raging over foreign immigration, prison reform, free education, uh, evangelical religion, gun violence, and growing inequality of wealth, and who should have the right to vote. Um, but, you know, the, the real uh, hugely divisive issue of the era and the one that is framed and uh, talked about closely inlay this body down is the fact that we had a group of human beings enslaving another group of humans solely because of the color of their skin. Yeah, and that, you know, most of those issues still stay with us. You know, I noticed that too when I do some writing in history. I'm, I'm covering more murders, but I, I noticed going through the papers that it's it's kind of the same fights over and over again. A hundred years later or two hundred years later, it's just the names change, but it's the same. It's the same sort of battling, you know, about this stuff. Yeah, and you know, and I try not to let it get me down. I, I try to. One of the things that I like about mysteries, and and maybe you do too, is the fact that they are really hero stories at heart. You have people who are trying to do the right thing, you know, solving a crime, um, trying to bring order and and uh, try to restore tranquility to society, normalcy. After you, after a, a really, you know, awful event, um, so it kind of gives me. I like to read mysteries because they really offer us a clear picture of what is right and what is wrong. Yeah, and I think that's important. Um, you know, it, it can get you down, but in a, in a sense, I think that it's just human nature that each generation that comes up, they're going to keep dealing with this because. Uh, I, I, who knows why, but it's been going on, it seems, for a couple hundred years, and it's not, you know, it doesn't change. It's very slow, I guess, the change. It's, it takes time. It takes generations, you know. And uh, But now you, you center around, you talk about, um, I guess, your, your main character here, who's, um, I believe, in Pennsylvania, and, and I believe he's like a sheriff, Gideon. He's got to... You know, the question is to choose to uphold the Federal Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 or defy it because it's a racist law. And um, so it's kind of that's kind of the center of of his his um, I guess what his choice that he's got to make through the book. That's right. Um, Al, in 1780, Pennsylvania passed an act for the gradual abolition of slavery. And then they passed a Fugitive Slave Act in 1826. Uh, and the Fugitive Slave Act of Pennsylvania was in direct opposition to the federal Fugitive Slave Act, which really required uh, law enforcement officials to aid 
people coming up from the south, bounty hunters or enslavers who were trying to get back folks who had courageously fled from slavery in the south and had come to Pennsylvania as a free state. So yes, Gideon Stoltz is he's torn here. He's got a uh, a boss, his boss who is the county prosecutor telling him, well, the federal law takes precedent precedence over the uh, Pennsylvania law. So you have to help these people who are uh, coming north and searching for a um, an, an escaped young man uh, who Gideon happens to know. Uh, this young man actually appears in the second novel in the series called Nighthawk's Wing, and uh, I just uh, I realized that I could I could bring him to life in the third novel. So I tell his backstory how he uh, left um, a plantation in Western Virginia. At and made his way into Pennsylvania and uh, how he's now in the town where Gideon Stoltz upholds the law. You know, um, with something so sensitive like that, how do you get into the mindsets of your characters? Like how do you, um, you know, get into the conversations that they have the, the between each other and how do you decide how and and who they're going to be and how they're going to talk and stuff like that. That must be a lot of soul searching in a way. Well, you know, to 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 make yourself familiar with what a person might be like, no matter what that person's color may be or that person's uh, situation in life, you, you have to think about it a lot. You, you need to read uh, uh, sources from the period. Um, you know, for instance, in the case of of the young man uh, who I portray as having uh, departed from Virginia to try to come to a life of freedom. Um, you know, you can read travelers' tales and you can read uh, narratives that were uh, created by, written by folks who did escape from slavery. So you try to put yourself in their shoes. You try to bring empathy uh, into the you know, the whole way that you think about the character. And I know that one thing I do in order to try to really get a feeling for my characters is that I write uh, a biography from the character's point of view. I use the character's voice. I actually have the character sometimes address me directly. And so when I, after I've written these bios for various characters, I then have a really good sense of what they're like, what makes them tick, what they may be afraid of, what they yearn for. And then when these characters get together, when they interact with one another, I think that their actions will be more natural and will really flow from their own personalities and will strike the reader as something, yes, this could have happened. Do you have a tough time... I'm getting into the head of someone that's a little bit more evil or someone that's quite a bit different than, let's say, who you are? Well, I don't know if this is a comment on myself, but no, I don't have much trouble doing that. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) You know, one thing that I do is I sometimes get a photograph. I find a photograph um, from the 1800s, let's say, later 1800s, because in 1837, photography was not yet on the scene. But I I will use that photograph to uh, envision my character. And I think that kind of helps me get into the character's uh, point of view, 
really figure out what makes the character tick. If I can look at an image and think, okay, this is what uh, this is what I'm envisioning for this particular character. You, you know, one thing I'm uh, also a historical fiction writer and write and historical mysteries. And do you ever struggle with sort of the, you know, needing to keep something historically accurate, but also appealing to kind of modern sensibilities? Like it feels like a balancing act, but I wonder if that's something that you struggle with too. Absolutely, John. Um, you know, there's a real pitfall in writing historical fiction, and since you write it, I'm sure you're aware of it too. But that's the info dump. You know, you want your book to have interesting aspects of history in it. You want to make readers, you know, sit up and say, oh, wow, I never knew that before. But it always has to be in service of the story. So, the other day, I, w I was writing a passage, and I realized, ah, you're just presenting too much info. This is more than the reader wants to know. And so you you have a you develop a sense of what to leave out, as much as what to put in. And when you put it in, what I try to do at least is to uh, integrate it with either uh, conversation, dialogue, or with action, so that it's not that you know just great dump of information that the reader has to wade through and that may kick the reader out of the story. Yeah, the sort of grand narrator stepping in and, and sort of uh, spewing information to the reader, modern audiences just really don't want that. Um, you know, I, although if you look back sort of, you know, at novels, maybe from this time period or maybe a little bit before the time period you're writing in, there's some of that. You have some of these, you know, moments of almost essay-like entries, but I, that's just not something you can do. So you, you're right. You do have to find a way to kind of have the characters talk about, you know, the, um, I guess, their, their, their version of current events, right? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and, you know, newspapers were a big deal then. Um, in fact, the, uh, the victim of the murder in this particular mystery is actually an abolitionist newspaper man. Um, and he turns up dead one night uh, along the road. It may be uh, a robbery. It may be something else. So that's one of the problems that my sheriff has to contend with at the outset of lay this body down. You know, you've got a murder. You have also in this uh, novel the fact that several free black citizens have disappeared. Rumor has it that they've been kidnapped to be sold into slavery in the South. And that happened in Pennsylvania. Uh, I've done a lot of research into that topic and read about uh, people who were who were kidnapped, and basically they lost the rest of their life. They were sent far south into the, the part of the South that was growing cotton, and there was very diff very little hope that they could get back. It must have been just a horrific feeling for them and their families and their friends and their communities. Um, and then the third uh, problem that my sheriff, sheriff main character faces is that this white enslaver from Virginia and a hired bounty hunter are showing up in town looking for a teenage runaway, and Gideon Stoltz has to make the decision, all right, which law do I uphold, the federal one or the state one? Yeah, it's kind of a moral or ethical problem that uh, 
he has to parse to move forward, I imagine. That was a situation that really a lot of people faced during this era. There was tremendous uh, controversy over slavery. And you had, in the North, you had a a lot of people who were abolitionists. They, they wanted immediate abolition of slavery. In the South, you had people who were saying, uh, this is our tradition. This is our, these people are our property. They're you know, there are chattel. It's hard for us to believe today, but this really held true. And, you know, in the North, while you had a strong abolitionist movement, you also had a lot of people who were becoming wealthy because of slavery. And those people were the folks who owned factories that took southern cotton and wove it into cloth. I live in New England, and we have a lot of New England mill towns where uh, – the town's wealth was was really delivered during the pre-Civil War period, and you see big, beautiful buildings that were put up by folks who owned textile mills. Well, you know, where did the cotton that uh, was turned into cloth in those textile mills come from? It was uh, grown under slave labor in the South. You know, we have to keep these things in mind as we, as we look at uh, the way our country is today. Yeah, you must see things quite a bit differently than a lot of people. Just having the background, how does how does one of these um, these books, when you uh, put it together and do the research and finally get it down on paper, how how much does it change you? Wow, that's a really good question. You know, Al, you may or may not have seen this on my website. But uh, many years ago, more than 25 years ago, I actually lost a family member to a murder. And so one of the things that I wanted to do in writing this series was to honestly portray what the phenomenon of murder does to the survivors, not just to the victim, obviously, but to the people who are left behind. And this would be family members. This would be members of a community. Um, it would even be the people who need to work hard to try to solve the crime and to uh, bring a murderer to justice. So I would say that that was the, the large motivation behind uh, my first novel, A Stranger Here Below. And what I chose to do was to give my main character the backstory of having lost his own mother to a murder when he was 10 years old. Yeah, and I can totally relate to that. You know, I, I write some true crime, and one of the books I did recently was that. And and throughout the book, the whole idea was to uh, deal with a lot of family members and uh, police. Everybody, it was more about the effects of the murders that happened than the murder itself. And I, I understand totally what you're saying. I think it's, uh, I think it's a truly important part of, uh, of of a crime like that that uh, a lot of crime writers don't do. Like they focus just on the gore, and and not the uh, the the effects. Or they write a what's known as a cozy mystery that uh, doesn't focus on the gore. It doesn't focus really on the effect. It's kind of a, you know, a, a, an esoteric sort of a of a of an action to to write uh, and and it doesn't really begin to 
present uh, the truth behind what murder really is. And so when you put together um, a book like this as well, um, do you have like a subtext or some sort of a, a meaning that you want people to take away from the book besides the story itself, besides maybe the murder being solved and what happened and things like that? With these Gideon Stoltz historical mysteries, I often look at one concept that I want to get across, one aspect of history from the Jacksonian era that I think is important and that I think people will be intrigued by. Um, my main character, Gideon Stoltz, for instance, he is uh, Pennsylvania Dutch, which means Pennsylvania German. And his family has been in Pennsylvania for many generations, but he still speaks German, at least he did, when he lived in uh, eastern Pennsylvania before coming west to this county where I have uh, placed him as the county sheriff. And so what, I, what I've done in that case is looked at the issue of uh, immigration, the issue of people who are different coming into an area and how they are othered, what they are uh, seen as, how they are looked at by local people. Um, and then, in, of course, in Lay This Body Down, the enslavement of human beings, uh, that chapter of our country is something that I work to get across. Uh, I happen to be doing the research right now and writing, actually, in the middle of writing, uh, um, a fourth novel that's called The Solitary, and it deals with uh, counterfeit currency, which was a huge problem in the 1830s because we really did not have much gold or silver here. The California gold strikes hadn't taken place yet. The U.S. was relying on Spanish, Portuguese, and English coins, mostly. Um, and then there was this great industry of printing counterfeit bills and putting them into circulation. So I try to pick a, a you know, an, an interesting or an intriguing aspect of history and, and bring it to the forefront within the service of a story. Well, what is it that attracts you to these, these aspects? Like, how do you find them? How do they come up in your, into your attention and you decide um, what makes you write it into a story? It really comes from reading. Uh, I read extensively about uh, the Jacksonian era. Uh, that book that I may have mentioned earlier in the show called Waking Giant uh, by David S. Reynolds, it's kind of a, a very lively history of the Jacksonian era. And so when I read a book like that, I, I kind of keep my ears pricked up. What, uh, what here could go into a novel? What would be intriguing for a, a 21st century reader to find out about the way life was in the 1830s, the things that were going on? What was making news back then? And, and your, your main character, Gideon, so where did, where did he come, come from? Gideon Stoltz uh, is Pennsylvania German, and he grew up in a, uh, a county in eastern Pennsylvania in the general region of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which still has a, a great number of folks with uh, Pennsylvania German uh, backgrounds. So he came from the eastern part of the state. He more or less got onto his horse, and he rode her west, and well, he didn't make it all the way out to uh, the Iowa Territory, let's say, but he came to rest in uh, a very backwoods county in the center of Pennsylvania, which I call Colerain County. 
and it's uh, 80 miles north of the Mason-Dixon line, uh, which is, as we know now, the, the divider between the north and the south. The states above the Mason-Dixon line were largely uh, free states, whereas those south of the Mason-Dixon line were slave states. So Gideon would have come out of a farming culture. He was a farm boy, uh, pretty big, pretty strong, um, not terribly sure of himself as a sheriff. He was The way he became a sheriff was that he was hired as a deputy, and then the sheriff who had hired him uh, fell over dead with a stroke of apoplexy. Now, the sheriff in Pennsylvania is an elected office, and uh, Gideon must be doing a pretty good job because he was just elected sheriff uh, in the fall of 1837. How do, how do you experience your characters, uh, you know, when you're writing? Do you do you hear them? Do you see them? Like, uh, I ask that because we get, you know, a lot of fiction writers have their different experience. So what's yours? Oh, gosh, sometimes they torment me. Like, I had a, I had a guy, a friend asked me, do your characters ever keep you awake at night? And I would have to say that, yes, they do. Uh, I'll be drifting off, just about getting getting asleep, falling asleep, and I'll have to get up and write down something that uh, some character has suggested to me. You'd better put this in the story. Well, as long as they're not uh, waking you up at night and telling you to do bad things. <laughs> Thank goodness. So you've um, written a lot about wildlife and nature as well. Um, how does that influence um, your your writing of fiction and maybe, you know, maybe your writing of historical fiction? Um, I'm curious about that. Yeah, I've had uh, close to 20 books published, nonfiction works having to do with nature and the outdoors and wildlife. And uh, I think what it does is it helps me to really uh, paint a picture of a place that was largely natural at that time in the 1830s. Pennsylvania was still heavily forested. Uh, it was The word Pennsylvania means Penn's Woods. And uh, it's nice to be able to have a background of knowledge about nature uh, that you can use to really create a strong sense of place. And one of the things that I do when I go back to Pennsylvania, which, you know, I live in Vermont, but I try to make it back to Pennsylvania uh, usually once a year. Um, one of the things that I do is that I go to uh, some natural areas where there are still uh, patches of the original forest uh, called virgin forest. And to actually be in these places and soak them in and, and realize that Gideon Stoltz could have ridden his horse through an area like this on a road, let's say, that wound through a stand of huge old hemlocks and, uh, you know, white oaks and really get a feel for the land. So I, I guess what I, you know, my background in, in nature uh, just helps me create what I think is a convincing sense of place for the reader. A kind of related question a little bit is, and it's something that I'm always uh, struggling with writing historical fiction as well, is the forensics of the time period. So, um, you know, when you're going to solve crime, you know, in, in mid-19th century, like what sorts of forensics are, are available to you, if any? <laughs> Yeah, John. That, you know, actually, it simplifies things for me. I don't have to worry about CCTV. I don't have to worry about 
you know, getting my cell phone out and, and or having my character uh, text somebody else. And, no, it, it was it was a much simpler uh, time. It was a much more difficult time in many ways to try to be uh, a law enforcement person um, because there really were, you know, fingerprinting was 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 never even thought of. Even at that time, germ theory was never had never been thought of either. You know, people got sick and they died. That was just the way it was. So, a different era altogether. And. Uh, a, a sheriff had to rely on his brains. He had to rely on his powers of observation. And sometimes he had to rely on brawn, too. He had to, you know, not be uh, completely averse to using violence if that's what the situation called for. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a fascinating, because it is, although you uh, leave the confines of the cell phone and technology, which um, I think often frustrates a lot of writers, particularly the the cell phone, because you can look up anything on it. But um, but then you have your sort of confined by another set of <laughs> like limitations. Um, but yeah, there is. I'm, I deal with sort of 1950s and 40s, so there is some degree of sort of forensics going on, but um, you know, not of course to the level we have today. But yeah, do you find that um, th- your mystery plots have to then hinge more on a character's uh, sort of read of other other characters, uh, sort of more of a psychological uh, detective, or do you feel like there's a lot of clues and sort of pursuit of that? Well, there would certainly be physical clues that I, uh, an 1830s sheriff would be looking for. I, I think that the reading of another person in a conversation, uh, you know, or if you might want to call it an interrogation, I think that probably a lot of that is very similar to what goes on today. Um, I think that law enforcement people have to have that, almost a, a sixth sense about whether a person is telling the truth or not. You know, you can look at, at cues, you can look at what a person's doing with their hands or you know, with their feet, uh, what their eyes do when they're, you know, answering a question or evading a question or whatever. But, um, yeah, I think that, I think that in the 1830s, it was simpler. It was difficult. Um, and yet, you know, somebody using common sense and their understanding of human nature could really begin to, to figure out, uh, you know what? Who may have caused a, a crime? What may have happened, and why? Plus, the cops can be a lot rougher to their people back then. <laughs> they could slap them around. Yeah, although Gideon Stoltz is not really that kind of a cop. <laughs> well, don't you don't you just um, take it out on your bad characters in your writing? You know, like there's there's uh, um, more action and. More violence, in fact, in Lay This Body Down than there were in my first two mysteries. Um, but I think in this particular case, it's called for because these were violent times and you had very uh, desperate and in some cases, I'll say evil people, uh, especially folks who, let's say, were uh, kidnapping free people and trying to sell them into slavery. I mean, that takes a certain that takes a certain desperation and a certain evil mindset to be able to f- follow through on something like that. So uh, 
let's just say that the the climax in this book is is pretty uh, uh, pretty active. Yeah, and you know, and a lot of those characters, like the people, like you're talking about, you know, pretty evil. They're, you know, um, kidnapping and and selling out uh, these uh, people as slaves and stuff like that. But, but you kind of have to put it in a perspective too, don't you? Have to kind of write it as if they, they probably think um, that they're correct in what they're doing. So you know, even though they're wrong, but in their minds, they believe in what they're doing too, right? Or is that am I totally off? Well, I think that you're not totally off. I think that um, you know the tradition of our country was uh, one that had actually been founded on the oppressing of one group of people by another. Um, so, yes, some people, you know, some people might have thought that this was normal. I would think that most people, though, who, if they were intelligent and if they were rational, would look at what was going on on plantations in the South and what was going on in cities uh, where people of color uh, were being kidnapped off the street sometimes, they would have looked at that and they would have certainly said, this is evil. I cannot imagine people who would not have come to that conclusion. Now, maybe they could talk themselves out of it. Maybe they could rationalize uh, that sort of behavior. But, uh, you know, at, at bottom, th this was really bad stuff that was happening. And uh, you know, I think we have to own up to that today. I want to circle back to something we were talking about earlier in terms of uh, the depiction of violence on the page, because it's actually something I think a lot about. Um, and I know people have lots of different opinions about it. You mentioned Cozy Mysteries, and you know, I have a lot of Cozy Mystery uh, fellow writer friends, and um, and I see it from their point of view, and then I think about it myself, and I'm like, well, I really want to, I really want to put violence on the page as honestly as possible. I don't want to indulge in it like you're in, enjoying the description or something, or, but you know, I, it's just curious because I guess you know maybe a writer has a different thing in mind. Uh, maybe cozies are are operating in a different way than you know more realistic crime fiction. Um, I mean, I don't think. They probably are realistic, I guess. I mean, I don't think they, they don't read to me as very realistic, but I'm just curious, like, do you, um, you know, like, how, how do you go about, like, thinking about how to write it in a very sort of craft sense? Like, how do you, what, what do you, what do you put on the page and how much and what's too much? Well, I'm going to tell you how I, look at writing a scene, whether it's a violent scene or a different sort of a scene. But one of the things that I, I really believe in is having uh, faith in my reader. And that faith is founded on the idea that if I take a certain observation and honestly put it down on the page and the reader reads it, then they're going to have a similar reaction to what I had uh, when I maybe envisioned a, a scene or envisioned an action. In terms of violence, I don't really like to write a lot of violence. And when I do, um, I kind of uh, break it down and, and make it sort of, you know, cut and dried, a series of actions. And I don't uh, try to stretch it out for a long period of time. I just don't like to, I don't like to consider that. I don't like to write that way. 
But again, I try to do it in an honest way too. And, you know, in, in, uh, 1830s, uh, America, for instance, we had flintlock, uh, weaponry. Only slowly were percussion guns coming along. And really right around 1837 was when Samuel Colt, uh, in New Jersey created the first repeating revolver. And after that, there was a big jump in violence, as you might imagine. I don't really try to wallow in the violence, but I try to portray it honestly, and and as I think it would have happened in the 1830s. I guess you have to be kind of conscious of how the conversations go between your characters, because back then people were a lot more brutal in their in, in their racism and how they spoke to other people. Are, are, do you have to be kind of aware of how you, how you put that out there? You certainly do. I think a major task in this kind of a novel is to portray practices and attitudes that we find horrific and deeply offensive, but without being offensive in the way that you present them. And that's a tall order, really. Um, language, for instance, was a, uh, you know, something that I really struggled with. What, what kind of words are you going to put on the page? And there were some real terrible slurs, uh, and pejorative words that were used to describe black people just because of the color of their skin. So I've, uh, I've elected not to use certain words that other people might think would have been common in the 1830s and in fact were common at that time. So again, I think that the task is to really portray an era, portray attitudes uh, that were offensive, but not do it in a way that offends modern readers so that they will continue to read and so that they will really pick up on uh, on the messages that you are trying to get across as an author. Now, of course, this is book three with Gideon, but when you started the Gideon series, um, what come first for you? Is it the character and then what what event and what kind of things are going to happen to them, or was it the story that come first and then you added the characters? Well, that's a really good question. Um, the first novel, A Stranger Here Below, actually is a story within a story. And I, years and years ago, I... My wife found a book uh, at a used book sale, and it was called On the Danish Peninsula, and it had in it a tale about a, a parson who was uh, convicted of murdering a man and who was hanged for his crime. Actually, I think he was beheaded. Um, this was in the 1600s. But then, mysteriously, uh, after he admitted to this, uh, this homicide, years later, um, the judge who had convicted him opened the door to find the man who had been presumed murdered standing on his doorstep. It's kind of a long story and somewhat convoluted, but I thought to myself, why not set this story in 1830s Pennsylvania? Uh, in the original Danish story, the judge who opens the door sees this person who he believed had been murdered 30 years earlier, and he dies of a heart attack. Well, I said to myself, let this judge live. Let this judge make a decision on ending his own life because of the guilt he feels and the tragedy that he was a part of. And so 
what I did was I, I made this judge the mentor and close friend of my sheriff character, Gideon Stoltz. And after this judge commits suicide, Gideon then needs to find out why. Why did Judge Hiram Biddle take his own life with a shotgun, um, apparently out of the blue? And this sends him on a, on a path that leads him into uh, a pretty dark history of Coleraine County and the town of Adamant, Pennsylvania. So where did writing um, start for you? How did you get into writing and, and, and doing these books? Oh, I've been... I've been writing ever since I was a child. I can remember writing book reports and, you know, kind of being delighted with the uh, chance to sit down and, and tell somebody what I thought about this work of of, uh, of writing. Um, I went to Penn State as a writing student. I went through the program, writing program in the English department. And by the way, the, the professors back then, uh, they kind of uh, – looked down on uh, mysteries as genre fiction. Same thing with fantasy. You know, a book that was written uh, from a fantastic point of view, a book that was written as just a mystery, yeah, that was actually, they thought it was kind of trashy. But they didn't they didn't know anything about, like, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, and The Lord of the Rings, what fantastic literature that truly is. And I honestly believe that well-written mysteries can be quite literary and, uh, you know, just excellent fiction. That snobbery, I'm afraid, isn't entirely um, <laughs> over. It's still, it's still with us very, very much. Um, but it, there have been sort of progress, I think. I'm, I'm also a, a teacher, professor. Um, now, you know, I'm really curious about uh, the, you know, I know you've done a lot of research about the time period and you've read um, – you know, uh, I guess historical documents from the time period, but do you have any writers from the, uh, you know, mid-19th century that you go to and read as sort of inspiration? Honestly, I don't, because I cannot read fiction in the style that was that was being used in the middle of the 1800s. Um, you know, Dickens, I just can't do it. I don't know about you, John, but... Uh, I, I do tend to read uh, modern novelists, um, and in many cases their novels are set in the 1800s, but I, I don't deeply read from that era itself. Um, some of the novelists who, I, who are working today or, or have been working over the last several decades whose writing really appeals to me, uh, one is James Lee Burke, um, terrific descriptions of the land and the sky and just really awe-inspiring villains. It's, it's a pleasure to read Burke's works. Um, historical novels by Paulette Giles, I, I like them a lot. And I, I guess my favorite, all-time favorite historical novelist is Patrick O'Brien with his uh, with his seafaring series. Yeah, I mean those those novels from the 19th century can be uh, can be some work. I, I do. I know I'm I'm very much a nerd when it comes to that stuff, but um, I don't know if they tell us a lot about how to write a novel now. <laughs> I think readers today have shorter attention spans, and fewer would be willing to really read lots and lots of words to to get to the point. And that's one of the things that I like about mysteries. Mysteries tend to be taught. You know, to be to be tightly written, and and they move right along. And 
So they're stories. They're they're stories that have uh, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and and they just have tend to be very well paced. So I read a lot of mysteries. I like them, and maybe that's why I write mysteries too. I had a friend who once told me that I think you are writing exactly the kind of books that you want to read. Yeah, well, that seems like any writer should do exactly that. I think if you're not the number one reader for your own book, then I don't know. <laughs> it might be difficult to like what you're doing. <laughs> right. Charles, do you have any social media set up, or do you have a website, or how do you like to interact with fans, or how do people find you? I have a website. Uh, just search on my name, charlesfergus.com, and uh, people who are interested can sign up for a once-a-month email newsletter about Gideon Stoltz and his life and times. Um, there's news about my events. Uh, but what I really try to do is to write about uh, the era and to to make folks aware of some of the interesting information that I really wouldn't dump into a novel, but that I think folks would be quite intrigued to find out about. I know, for instance, I have a, a blog post uh, on medicine in the early 1800s, and uh, you know, it's pretty scary, really, to read, to read about, and to to realize just how how easy it was for somebody to, you know, get a cut on their hand and die of the end up dying of the infection, or to have a have a family with five children uh, at the beginning of the summer and end up with only one or none at the end of the summer because of dysentery or the bloody flux or or another disease so you know you're gonna if you sign up for my newsletter you'll be getting uh some interesting stuff about the 19th century as well as uh, news about Gideon Stoltz and how his mystery books are doing and of course we'll have that up on our website as well so people can find it with one click make it easy you know how is he must have been writing this over the covid too so how is that for you does 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 Things like COVID and stress and all the weird stuff that goes on outside of your door or in the States at the time affect you in your writing? Yes, it certainly does. Um, I think a lot of people in this country have been uh, bothered by, depressed by some of the events of the last three or four years. Um, maybe what I'm doing here is actually escaping from those events by going deep into my fiction. You know, I can... I can sit down at my desk and I can kind of forget about all the storm drawn that's going on in the world today and I can uh, involve myself with uh, a simpler time period and, and uh, you know, ride a horse alongside a, a, a county sheriff who, who has to use his wits and his, and his strength and his intuition to solve crimes. Um, I will say too that I did a a, a very uh, extensive book tour for a stranger here here below. I think I did 23 events uh, for that first novel in 2019, which was pre-pandemic. And then when the pandemic came along, and my second novel came out, it's called Nighthawk's Wing. Uh, I really didn't do any events. I did some Zoom programs, but um, that's not not the same thing as as you know doing a reading in a bookstore or a library and having a chance to get to meet the folks who are buying your mysteries. Yeah, it's quite a, quite a different thing. It's a whole different thing doing the um, Zoom and pandemic and all that stuff like that. It's kind of a, it's a, 
It's a new way of approaching. Well, yeah, and I, and I think, too, that uh, somebody who sits down and watches a program on Zoom, it's kind of like watching TV. They are not motivated to get up and then buy your book from you, right, and get it autographed. Yeah, yeah and then they don't always buy it. When they do, they don't always buy it from the bookstore that's sponsoring the event, which then. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah, they buy it from that from that huge amoeba <laughs> that will go nameless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unfortunate, you know. But so what's next? What's coming up after this? Well, I have this book that I'm working on right now. Um, I got, let's see, about 900 words written today, which for me is a good day. Uh, the novel, it's the fourth in the series. Uh, it's called The Solitary. And actually what it does is it almost becomes more of a thriller than a mystery because the reader knows from the very beginning of The Solitary who the villain is, and the reader travels along with the villain and uh, is inside of the villain's mind when he does some things that are pretty horrendous. But Gideon, of course, doesn't know this. Gideon Stoltz, my sheriff, uh, he meets this person, but he's not aware of what a danger, really, what a psychopath this person is. So um, that's what's on online right now. Um, like I said, I got 900 words written today. And, you know, if you think about it, if you write a 1,000 words a day, you can write a book inside of three months. So that's what I'm going to try to do, finish that book up, and, and then I'll see what's, uh, what's next in line. Well, it's certainly been a great conversation. We're glad you were able to come on the show. Now, of course, the book we're talking about, Lay This Body Down, and it's a Gideon Stoltz mystery. It's book three, out February 14th, and our guest has been the author, Charles Fergus. Thank you for being here. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Charles. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.